Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Dr. Katie Stevenson, a GP trainee and podcast co-lead for TASME. In this episode, we pick up the topic of neurodivergence and medical education. Tonight, we welcome a new podcast co-host and pre-production lead, Dr. Oliver Mercer, an internal medicine trainee from London. Oliver and I had the pleasure of spending an hour with Dr. Cleone Pardo, a teaching fellow at Leeds Teaching Hospitals, and Dr. Seb Shaw, a lecturer in medical education within the Department of Medical Education at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. We discuss neurodivergence, neurodivergent learners, educators and patients, and how to make medical education more accessible, as well as scholarship within this field. Seb shares his experience as being multiply neurodivergent himself and how his academic interests stem from his lived experiences. His PhD explored the impacts of dyslexia and dyspraxia on medical education and his ongoing work centres around neurodivergence in medical education and neurodivergent healthcare. We hear from Cleone and her experiences of being dyslexic and how this has led to her master's in clinical education, looking at dyslexia amongst medical educators. We have included a list of organisations who offer support to neurodivergent students and doctors at the end of this episode. We have also listed the research and papers mentioned in the episode in the podcast description. Make a cup of tea and join us for this episode where we will explore neurodivergence and medical education. Welcome to this episode of TASME Talks in Medical Education. Um, This evening, we will be discussing neurodivergence in medical education. Uh, We're joined um, firstly today by Dr. Seb Shaw, who is a lecturer in medical education, um, specifically research methods within the Department of Medical Education at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Seb is autistic, ADHD, dyslexic and hypermobile, and his academic interests stem from his associated lived experience. His PhD explored the impacts of dyslexia and dyspraxia on medical education and his ongoing work centres around neurodivergence in medical education and neurodivergent healthcare. In line with these interests, Seb is currently the research lead for Autistic Doctors International and Seb currently splits his time between teaching and research as well as part-time clinical work. He also sits on the editorial board for the journal Nurse Education in Practice. And our second guest is the lovely Dr. Cleone Pardo, who uses the um, pronouns she, her. She is a senior clinical teaching fellow at Leeds Teaching Hospitals and is currently undertaking her master's in clinical education at the University of Leeds. Clinically, Cleone is a medical trainee with an interest in dermatology. Cleone is vice chair for TASME and her educational interests are neurodiversity, including dyslexia in clinical education, as well as gamification of clinical education. Cleone is dyslexic as well. So thank you very much, Seb and Cleone, for joining us um, for this episode of TASME Time. Um, We are very grateful to have you here. Um, First of all, um, can we start off with Cleone, would you mind telling us a little bit more about how you got involved in medical education and then how you got interested in this topic? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on this episode. I'm very excited to be the other side of the kind of mic and the workings of the podcast. Um, In terms of my 
um, educational background. I guess everyone always laughs at this, but it stems from when I was younger, I used to teach ballet and I used to teach violin. Um, and I think I just really got a um, huge enjoyment of seeing people kind of get to grips with something or improve and understand something. And I think my educational love stems from that. Um, and then when I got into medical school, I loved kind of near peer teaching of younger years. Um, and I did lots of stuff as an F1 with the kind of final year students getting them ready for their exams. Um, and it's just kind of spiraled from there. So I then went on to do a um, teaching fellow year at University of Warwick and Warwick Hospitals, doing my PG cert. Um, and then did a couple of years of kind of clinical training, getting my core medical competencies kind of finished off. And then have spent two years again back as a clinical teaching fellow, but this time up in Leeds um, and worked towards my master's in clinical education, which I'm just kind of well, part of the way through my project at the moment. Um, but yeah, my so my interests kind of lie around dyslexia and medical education, and particularly with that um, medical educators with dyslexia, which I suppose it stems from my own experiences as being dyslexic, um, that I feel that quite often, or it's becoming that we're giving more support to kind of medical students and we're becoming more aware of some of the um, kind of support that might be available for doctors on the ward or that we should be putting in place in clinical practice. Um, but I think we forget sometimes about the other side of the coin, like people who are educating or people that are maybe running exams, that they too need that support and may have kind of challenges that they need to overcome and sometimes we just forget about it because we're too worried about the other people. Um, so that's, I suppose, where my interests lie and where my kind of research is at the moment. I think that's probably, I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much, Cleo, and that's really helpful. And I think I can speak on behalf of everyone. We're, we will be really interested to hear a little more about your personal journey with um, dyslexia and how that sort of sparked your interest in looking more sort of like scholarly into sort of um supporting medical educators with dyslexia I'm really in interested dyslexic medical educators even so I'm really interested to hear a bit more um but first is it possible if we could um hear a little bit from you Seb so um if you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in medical education and how you got um sort of interested and involved um particularly with regards to neurodivergence um, that would be really helpful. Yep, no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, as Cleon was saying, thanks for having me this evening, firstly. ASME's been a really positive uh, aspect of my career so far, so it's nice to be able to come back and do this sort of thing. Um, so my own journey, I mean, I would reiterate the fact I've always kind of been interested in teaching. Um, I think you either are or you aren't in many ways, and I always was. Um Looking back, it probably relates to my own uh, my own minority neurotype and the fact that I struggled with education. Um, so in order to survive the kind of rigid education systems in this country, I had to be able to break things down and learn them simply. Uh, and I think that gives a nice ability to then be able to relay those things simply to other people and also to empathically recognize our, our own people uh, and and provide support in those ways. So I I always had that natural leaning. Um, I did a lot of army cadets in my teens, uh, a lot of teaching stuff through there. 
and then just again got involved in teaching stuff at uni um and then I did an intercalated uh, med ed masters between my third and fourth year at med school, uh, where my dissertation looked at the experiences of dyslexic medical students. Um, and uh, being my, my true autistic ADHD combined self, why do one project when you can do four? Um, so I, <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, I took on probably an awful lot more than was necessary and did a lot of different bits. Um, so I became very interested in qualitative research and the way that it can uh, reinforce social justice and empowering people who are otherwise oppressed or marginalized. And my first introduction to that was during that master's year, I used autoethnography as a research method to basically just look at my own experience as a dyslexic med student. And the thing that's made me think about that is Cleone's point about uh, about uh, dyslexic medical educators, because one of the uh, Cleone's nodding, she may well have read this paper, but, <laughs> but yeah, okay, yeah, uh, one of the things that I became interested in within that was looking at, at, at particular strengths dyslexic people have, and I felt that teaching was one of those, and then I thought I did follow that through into my main master's project, which is a what we call a phenomenological study, so uh, interviews uh, with dyslexic doctors. Um, and, and it did follow through there as well. So actually, I'm really interested to hear about Cleone's uh, projects because it sounds very nicely a follow on from what I did for my master's. Um, beyond my master's, I, I, real, I, I started to reflect more critically, I suppose, on neurodivergence. At the time I had a dyslexia diagnosis, but I hadn't come to the realization of my wider intersectionality, I suppose. Um, I was openly dyslexic, I was openly gay, but I, I wasn't really aware of being autistic or ADHD at the time. Um, and particularly as I transitioned into clinical practice, I, I started to become more aware of my own uh, differences, be it strengths and challenges in the clinical environment. Um, so I ended up uh, seeking and, uh, and receiving formal diagnoses for autism and ADHD, ADHD being very recent, about eight weeks ago. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, things have just progressed from there. So I, I did a PhD looking at dyslexia and dyspraxia, all centered around supporting the lived experience of dyslexic and dyspraxic people in med ed. Um, and most of what I do now looks around autism and ADHD. And I'm particularly interested uh, in the kind of sociology side of things. So looking kind of, as I was saying, with the autoethnography stuff, looking at partly why certain groups of people are considered less or dehumanized or marginalized and why this happens subconsciously through society. None of us mean to be nasty generally. Um, and then looking at the impacts that has, whether that's within med ed and looking at things like uh, systemic ableism and how that can impact on students' experiences, or looking at wider stuff like healthcare access. You know, if we think of the GMC's uh, welcome and valued ethos, we, we need neurodivergent doctors to better support the needs patients um, and we know autistic people for example die on average 16 to 30 years younger than non-autistic people um, so part of what I am interested in outside of med ed is applying things like minority stress theory to look at how social processes um, and uh, societal environmental issues can directly impact on health um, so I look at both sides the kind of supporting and training in the healthcare sector and then the service that we provide to help uh, kind of the people who need us the most. Uh, and that's what drives what I do, I suppose, and been my journey to date. Thank, thank you. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> what I, um, I think something that I'm hearing from both of you um, is that your personal experiences and views on sort of 
the the world have really influenced your journey through sort of your clinical careers but also your sort of educational and um, research careers and I think you that has driven your passion and you've looked at your own experiences but then sort to look at the wider sort of world and how, how other people experience that as well and how that directly affects sort of um, healthcare education and navigation of services I think it's really um, excellent excellent work but I'll, I'll hand over to Oliver for the next question so um we've we've talked a little bit about um different terms um that come underneath the sort of neurodivergence umbrella but what what is neurodiversity for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the term or just sort of it's new to them what do we mean by saying by neurodiversity um okay so neurodiversity big question um so there's different facets uh so uh so we have the fact neurodiversity the simple facts that none of our brains are the same uh so we have the neurodiversity fact we have the neurodiversity movement which is the big group of people uh born out of the disability rights movement who use the concept of neurodiversity to uh, advance people's rights and, and social justice and then above all of that the thing that most people refer to as neurodiversity uh being the neurodiversity paradigm uh which is essentially a set of beliefs about how we frame uh, neurodivergent differences, um, clearly outing the way I believe in, in this and the language I'm using. But um, so uh, the neurodiversity paradigm would argue that things that were traditionally seen as deficits or disorders, such as autism spectrum disorder, uh, and were very focused on flaws inherent within uh, the individual uh, and, uh, and, to do, and focused on normalizing um, and promoting tragedy narratives, the neurodiversity paradigm basically argues that potentially there is no such thing as a, as, a, as an inherent disorder, that th these are essentially differences that become disabilities um, within social, cultural, environmental settings, um, very linked to the social model of disability in that way. Um, so people who don't really understand neurodiversity uh, friend and I often refer them to neurodiversity light people often think that it's a way of pretending everything's fine and um and you people talk about harmful depathologization or radical neurodiversity um it's often a misunderstanding it you know most of us who work within this area don't even think about claiming that we're not disabled we just shift the shift the focus why are we disabled and i like sticking with dyslexia here i like to use the example of hieroglyphs and the fact that dyslexic people are really really good at visuospatial reasoning usually um so we might not be that great with our reading and writing nowadays if we were in ancient egypt we'd probably be the best ones um, and the way that society has evolved since then has become disabling to a group who were superior in that aspect before or people with adhd sleep uh, sleep dysregulation don't like that term but uh but differences with sleep now we enforce a nine till five working regime but under a neurodiversity paradigm we would look back to tribal cultures and say actually that's why the tribes didn't get eaten the people with adhd wouldn't match everyone else's sleeping patterns as someone was always naturally awake um and that to me is what neurodiversity is all about mostly focused on the paradigm and not discounting the difficulties we can face in life but changing the focus of the cause of those to think more meta and scary big thoughts around the way society is structured and the way systems are structured big answer sorry no that's great i think it it's a really uh 
different way of um of approaching it because i think the one session we had at medical school was very much on like diagnostic criteria and um and 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 as you said the sort of the deficit deficit view of of neurodiversity rather than actually as you say the sort of different strengths but also being aware that there may be individuals who who struggle in certain areas but have um um different skills to everyone else and that interesting to view it as in your um when you were introducing yourself earlier you did mention that you sought out diagnoses for for some aspects that fall within sort of neurodiversity and whilst it's not an exhaustive list what are some of the common um diagnoses that people that we may see under the neurodiversity um umbrella so the terminology around neurodiversity, most of us, particularly those of us in the autistic community, tend to go by Nick Walker's uh, terminology, uh, which she's written in her Neuroqueer blog. Um, and that's basically society is neurodiverse, lots of different neurotypes, but an individual cannot be neurodiverse. We are neurodivergent. So you can be neurotypical or neurodivergent, and there's lots of different types of neurodivergence, uh, which are minority neurotypes because there's not so many of us, and those of us who are who either self-identify or have formal diagnoses of more than one of these things, um, we tend to be referred to as multiply neurodivergent. So neurodivergent in multiple ways. Uh, so that would cover my kind of autistic, ADHD, dyslexic self. In terms of the formal diagnosis part of the question. Um, so I am massively an advocate for self-diagnosis. Um, so within the medical world, it is what it is. Uh, we are so indoctrinated into a medical model way of thinking and that we are these magical gatekeepers to all of these, uh, you know, we talked about the sick role, the disability role. It's all very pathological, all very medicalized. Um, so in some ways, that, that will take a long time to change within, within medicine, and that influenced why I did seek formal diagnoses. Um, but I personally am very much a supporter of self-diagnosis, um, particularly uh, in the realm of autism and ADHD, where the waiting lists, uh, unless people pay privately, it can be a decade, at best around five years. Um, and so, some, some of the research I've done over the last few years has found some lovely findings to support the validity of self-diagnosis uh, in the context of autistic people, um, which is nice. Um, in terms of what we include, again, probably a bit academic and meta, but uh, there are a set sort of list of labels. I don't like really thinking of them conditions, but, but there's labels that we assign people that people tend to associate with neurodiversity. And that is things like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and Tourette's would be the main ones that people talk about. There are proponents who talk about, uh, kind of really advocate for expanding that to, to wider psychiatry in general, given the, the constant fluid nature of psychiatric labeling and the associated stigma and disorder views. Um, I think most of us academically working in the area basically say that arguing a clear cutoff point defeats the purpose in some ways becoming well by arguing a clear to, to cutoff point we essentially become exclusive and excluding um and i suppose it somewhat undermines itself at that stage so we've got our list of things differences self-identities that, that that tend to be covered by neurodivergence but it's not an exclusive club 
I think that's the best way I can put that. And I'm sure Cleo will now give you a much better, better <laughs> answer. <laughs> that does not so matter. So we've talked about that actually it's a, a real range of people um, and individuals. And obviously we as educators know that individuals have different learning needs whether they identify as being neurodivergent or or not but we uh what are some of the challenges that students may face learners both sort of undergraduate or postgraduate learners what what are some of the challenges that we need to be aware of in sort of our teaching practice so i think the thing that um probably from experience more than kind of hard, solid facts, I'll give you the experiential (laughs) perspective, um, is that every student is an individual, whether they are neurodivergent or not, um, and that they will each have their strengths and their challenges. And I think it's always important to remember that it doesn't matter what's going on. There's there's usually a story to each student. Um, And trying to kind of be mindful and picking out those challenges. Um, Some of the kind of traditional or perhaps kind of well recognized things around kind of particularly I mean my experience is much more in dyslexia so I could speak more about that um but is particularly about the way that they can think so in quite a creative way um often are incredible problem solvers and lateral thinkers um and will often come at a situation from a completely different angle I think one of the most important things to think about in medicine is that we we are the, the thinkers and the people that need to kind of maybe go off that pathway so when someone isn't fitting in a box in their clinical diagnosis and you need to think in a different way that's the exact thinkers that neurodivergent people kind of bring um and i think we we need to recognize that and kind of promote those skills so lateral thinking communication skills is often a massive strength um and um kind of innovation and thinking about new technologies and that sort of thing they're going to be the people that are driving this in within the medical sphere I think in terms of challenges I mean classically we think about kind of reading writing difficulties perhaps things like cognitive load so taking on a lot of information in one time so when I'm teaching particularly I'll try and think about how do I phrase that question do I ask kind of question 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 or do I ask it in chunks of questions because it's going to be much easier to get that student to the end if I've asked those in parts of questions to guide them through it, then kind of whack a massive like multi-part question at the student. I think the real thing for me about it though that's kind of has struck me is that if you make those changes, like they're small little changes, it actually improves for a lot of students. So we kind of talk about inclusive practice and actually a lot of the things that you can do is helpful for everybody. So things like, um, so actually at our work, we've developed um, like a baseline standards because things like reading off a board can be really difficult for people with dyslexia um, because of the kind of glare, if, especially off white white screens. Um, all of our presentations are now done on kind of a pastel blue background. Um, just checking things like not using um, serifs on your fonts. So if you've got like flicks, so avoiding using that. Um, size of font using things like simple pictures next to text because somebody might be able to associate with a picture much better than words so there's little things but actually it doesn't do anyone any harm by having those things there and it might help a lot of people particularly those people that haven't managed to get a diagnosis don't die like don't divulge their diagnosis or aren't even kind of 
aware that they fit into that kind of um kind of not neurotypical pattern thank you so much Cleone and um I know Seb's also published um 12 tips on um how to sort of um enable I can't remember the exact title apologies and we can link it at the end but um on how to sort of enable um that process of learning for dyslexic learners um thinking sort of more widely Seb would you be able to shed some um light on the similar on the same sort of question that Oliver asked um that Cleone spoke about in terms of dyslexic students but what are some of the um the challenges but also this is a huge question and I'm not doing a good job of chunking it either but what are some of the challenges and strengths that neurodivergent learners um bring to the table Uh, that could be exhaustive obviously but maybe some common pitfalls that we and 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 common sort of things that maybe educators should um pay attention to um it's, uh, the 12 tips thing, by the way, uh, is quite old. So just the caveat in there that the tips are good. I'm sure still haven't reread it in about five years, but the language is not neurodiversity affirmative. I was on my journey, not there yet. So it's still quite negatively framed because um, I, I was still a med student when I read that. Um, just get that aside. Um, just so it's not representative of the way I would write things now. Um, so... In terms of the bigger question around strengths and challenges, I would re- reiterate pretty much everything that Cleon said uh, around the individual nature of differences. One person's strengths will be another person's weaknesses. And within even a single neurotype, there is just as much of a spectrum uh, as, as there is between different neurotypes. Um, I can give one example of turning a stereotype on its head, which I quite enjoy. Uh, So I will reiterate communication skills being a strength for autistic students in particular, uh, which is probably not one that people expect to hear. Um, And if anyone is interested in reading around this, I'd suggest they look at something called the double empathy problem as a theory of autism uh, through Damian Milton's work. Um, which essentially argues that the way that people empathize and communicate with one another it's inherently related to our own world experience. It just is. It's in the definition of empathy. Um, so if one, if someone is not autistic, how can they ever empathise with an autistic person? And if someone is autistic, how can they truly empathise with someone who isn't? We've, we've never walked in each other's shoes. Um, and people have started to relay, uh, do work on this, relating it to communication skills as well. And there's a fabulous little paper um, come out from Catherine Crompton and her team uh, in recent years, looking at the way autistic people communicate. Um, And they compared different groups of people. They took a group of all autistic people, a group of all non-autistic people, and a mixed group, some autistic, some not autistic. Does anyone want to suggest which group had the best communication skills, objectively speaking? I'm going to guess autistic then. (laughs) Spot on. Um, <laughs> autistic, the purely autistic group had the most effective, objectively best communication in this study. Um, the And the worst communication was the mixed autistic, non-autistic group. And when they broke it down, it was equally bad in both directions. Basically, they just did not get each other in the way they were communicating. And that's where troubles come into play. Uh, so, so, And it's why, again, we look at the differences under the neurodiversity paradigm. So autistic uh learners in med ed to tend there's a lot of pitfalls and they they tend to we (laughs) tend to get into difficulties when 
I think neurotypical people around us don't understand and accommodate and expect some of the differences in communication styles. For example, being a bit more abrupt, or I tend to waffle off point to the uh, to the point of tangential thinking. <laughs> uh, but they're not weaknesses inherently, and there's a lot of strengths coming from those skills in medicine, and particularly when talking to autistic patients um, and adjusting and accounting for the massive life expectancy differences and increased rates of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and various co-occurring conditions. Um, and so communication skills can be a real strength, but for non-autistic people within MedEd, it's really important one to actually read around um, and I'm going to be that sad person who says, actually, I, I think it is important that all medical educators are familiar with some basic theory around cross-neurotype communication uh, as real core. And I would suggest the double empathy problem as a core core reading uh, for that side of things. Um, other things that tend to come into play, uh, both for autistic and ADHD, but, but particularly autistic students, is around the need for restorative solitude. Um, so being constantly bombarded by the social and sensory environment of a hospital is not fun. <laughs> doesn't matter how many years I do it, it's never going to become fun. Uh, there's a reason I like GP. Um, and doing that day in, day out, it, it develops what I refer to as emotional exhaustion. Um, so we tend to be hyper empathic, but it's so all consuming that we freeze and don't display it, leading to the original uh, stereotypes around not having empathy. Uh, so absorbing everyone else's problems and becoming so really paralyzed through that and constantly masking and making sure we appear non-autistic or non-ADHD in clinical settings to protect ourselves and uh, risk assess and mitigate potential for misunderstandings is exhausting. So um, so most of us would describe coming home and just collapsing in a pile at the end of a busy clinical shift or re a clinical shift really focusing on intense social interaction or met calls, emergencies, unpredictable changes in routine. And one of the best things I think we can do for neurodivergent learners is providing a safe space dedicated for restorative solitude in clinical settings. Universities uh, often already provide this. I know not all. Uh, Sussex, I'm very proud to say, are very forward thinking in a lot of ways. Um, but I think in clinical settings, that's a massive oversight is actually having, even if it's a cupboard, let's face it, it's often a cupboard, <laughs> just somewhere that we can go and be sensory void uh, for a few minutes. And I think that's one of the biggest changes we can make to prevent meltdowns, shutdowns and things that will basically uh, be misunderstood and, and cause further challenges um, in clinical environments. I think small adjustments like that, having a space for people to go to just sit and chill for a few minutes away from sensory input and social input can make a real difference and allow a lot of the strengths to shine. You know, so the different communication skills from other minority groups, the um, hyper focus is a really good one, um, particularly ADHD, uh, uh, or the ability to start a million projects and then you can use them to procrastinate from one another. And then suddenly you have a massive output <laughs> because you procrastinate in a circle and it's very productive, um, which is very good sometimes. Um, or, or the big one that I found for autistic people, and we, we wrote about this in our uh, British Journal of Psychiatry piece about autistic psychiatrists earlier this year, is around a strong sense of uh, justice, social justice. And so it's a strength and a challenge. Um, some of us who are masked more naturally, um, it has its downsides associated with mental health 
worse outcomes, suicidality, and lots of negative things to not be ourselves. But um, but uh, people who who do understand that and embrace their true autistic identity t- do tend to become whistleblowers more often through essentially strong moral compass. Uh, and that can present challenges. So it's a real strength for improving patient care, improving injustices within education and clinical practice. Uh, but it's also something that can get uh, can can get autistic people in trouble sometimes, where people don't understand that difference. And I think that's uh, another important thing that we can do within MedEd is understand the the idea of the kind of stronger moral compass and the way that can govern the way we act, I suppose. Uh, and if we embrace that and understand it in the right way, it can be another real strength. That's probably more than enough examples. Um, but that, I've tried to not focus on dyslexia stuff. So I've tried to give some better gun stuff around autism and ADHD. I hope that's kind of what you were hoping for. Thank you so much, Seb. And I I feel a bit embarrassed that there's some of the things that you're sharing and talking about that I did know about, but actually this, um, this um, evidence behind people um, having so autistic people having this strong sense of um social justice it I, I didn't know that at all and that is really fascinating and actually um rings true with lots of experience with friends and colleagues and patients you know actually this is there's a you know there is such a like you mentioned earlier this negative um stereotyping rhetoric around um people with neurodivergent people um having sort of challenges and actually already um you're really highlighting all of those amazing strengths as well that our learners patients educators um will will bring to the table um i'm i'm really grateful um to you sharing lots of examples there and i think um hopefully all of our listeners will be able to reflect on those things that you've shared but also go away and have a look at the double and um, go and have a look at that um book that you mentioned did you say it was the double can you repeat it again the double empathy? Yeah, uh, so uh, so the researcher is called damien milton who is an openly autistic researcher who does fabulous work refuting a lot of the early damaging things like extreme male brain theory and theory lacking theory of mind and all of the things that led to dsm4 essentially um dsm5 is slowly starting to improve on um and damian milton came up with the double empathy problem arguing that the difference with autistic people is just that we don't we don't lack empathy we just don't get each other and then they're doing work there's different groups doing work to then evidence it in different ways so there's also groups in the u.s doing some fab studies around um so coming out of Noah Sasson's lab, I believe there were studies looking at in the general population that people do view autistic people as uh, less favourably, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but, but then look at, looking around how that can be combated, and there's some uh, provisional work coming out showing that actually people being open about being autistic does seem to lead to slightly more favourable uh, valorizations of of them. Um, and again, looking at that double, uh, putting things in that double empathy. Uh, context i can give you one more myth busting stereotype busting thing by the way when you were speaking it, may, it came into my head what do you think so with, uh, I, I, this is public knowledge so i can give you this info what special so let's not think about stereotypes what specialties do you think might be the most overrepresented in autistic doctors international oh is this is this oh okay so <laughs> it feels it feels very stereotypical and judgmental can we all say something so it's not just on me um well 
I, w- I would probably have historically, you might debunk this, um, go for either a more, um, a specialty that would allow more solo working so that people could have that time for sort of restoration. So I can't remember what you called it. I need to, I've, I've taken loads of notes, restorative solitude, restorative. Did I say that right? Um, so potentially some of the clinical specialties that lend itself to that maybe like pathology or um, um, other like even general practice. Um, but I might I might be completely way off with that. I don't know. What do other people think? I don't want to come across as judgmental. I haven't actually thought about it that much before. So you're challenging me, Seb. I think <laughs> I'd have, yeah. If I was to... It, uh, from what you've said in the conversation so far, I think things like anesthetics, where there's lots of like problem solving on on the on the cuff kind of thing, um, and uh, but, but yeah, I'm I'm challenging my own preconceptions now as well. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say anaesthetics, but that's only because I'm doing quite a lot of work with anaesthetists at the moment um, and about their training and education and neurodiversity. So perhaps I'm slightly influenced at the moment. Our founder is an anaesthetist, to be fair. Um, Psychiatry, our most overrepresented specialty by far is psychiatry. And that relates to one of the real key strengths, autistic people. It doesn't come naturally to us to just get how non-autistic people work. So most of us become really fascinated by it. I love sociology and psychology and all my work and masters and stuff because I love to know how other people tick because non-autistic people don't tick in the way that I do. Um, And so to that end, actually, it's the relational specialties. So GP is massive and it's our biggest specialty. But when you actually account for the number of people within each specialty and GP is always going to be massive and the really overrepresented one is psychiatry, followed by uh, right down the bottom of this list, we just have so few people that we see in surgery, radiology, pathology, uh, all of the stereotypical specialties that people uh, might like to associate with the negative autistic stereotype. They're not overrepresented in our membership at all. And I just love the fact that I'm able to tell people that it's psychiatry. I'm, I'm really glad. I've definitely walked into that trap. I felt like I was on QI there for a second. So I hope I haven't offended anybody. I didn't mean it in an offensive way, but that was very helpful. Thank you, Seb. I, I love the challenging. It's making it, it making it even more interesting. Yeah, so I think, uh, clear, and this is probably for you, uh, about, we talked a lot about, the different things we can do but actually practically it's quite hard to particularly in the later years of medical school when your 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 much of your education is ward-based attached to a firm that kind of experience or um even in sort of postgraduate medical education and other healthcare specialties that kind of situational um and experiential learning from what said and you have said I imagine that comes with some of its unique challenges. And so what as educators, teaching fellows for undergraduates, but also colleagues, supervisors of postgraduate learners, what are some of the things that we can do or be aware of that we can bring into our day-to-day work? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've realised is that particularly within the clinical setting, less so in 
in the educational classroom setting and at the university early stages because I think they've probably got it quite well honed as to kind of the support that's available to them via kind of the um, student networks and kind of the way that we teach it's quite well understood I think now but clinical environment is just such a one of its own that I think not a lot of people know particularly kind of maybe early trainees or even students know what support or what could be done to support them and help them and I think one of the things that we've started developing is um, we have never come up with a good name for it um, but is a menu of things that could be done and because we recognize that everyone is different everyone is going to have different um, things that might be beneficial might not or things they might want to try um, and it made me think of it Seb when you were talking about um, having the um, room for some kind of restorative solitude that actually if you have kind of that as an option and you know that that's something that's going to be okay if you go off and no one's going to question it and no one's going to kind of come at you then have like knowing that makes things so much easier so we've kind of been developing this menu as it were it's got things like going in and having a tour of the environment because I don't know but I find that one of the most anxiety inducing things and I think if you can be shown around you can meet the people beforehand have a picture of who your team members are um like their names and maybe a little bit about them beforehand um things like just encouraging supervisors to have inclusive language or anybody but supervisors particularly so things like how do you like to learn doesn't matter whether they know whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse like that that's just such great language to use or like people have strengths and they have challenges what are some of your strengths and challenges what can we work on all of those sorts of things I think are much more inclusive um, and I think the more that we can move towards that it's going to be more helpful um, trying to think of some of the other examples that are um, on the more in a more clinical environment um, I guess things like on a ward round if there's several of you does it help for one person to document and the other person to kind of read things out um or like you might kind of find out those strengths amongst you within a team but like for me I always used to find documenting on a ward round particularly stressful because trying to write down and listen to what they're saying at the same time and try and spell it right um as well like was really difficult and then you got stressed that you haven't got it done so if you if there's some way that even your consultant knows that that's a difficulty that they make sure that they kind of spell it out to you um not like literally spell it out but like tell you in section by section what you need to write down just little things like that could be like super helpful um like if you're delivering teaching on the ward maybe try and take it away from a noisy ward environment where people are having kind of phone calls with microbiology or whatever it is try and take it to a quiet space and um, just small kind of adaptations that they're not too hard to do but actually would make quite a difference to how the that day goes for that person I'm so glad we have um teaching fellows like yourself Cleo because this everything that you're saying is so important and like you said um not just for neurodivergent people but for everybody like we want to make everybody's learning experience more enjoyable more accessible more fun really and all of the things that you've mentioned you know that those things will reduce stress amongst learners and make that learning experience much more enticing enjoyable and consolidate their learning in a better way rather than having this traumatic experience that they associate with that learning event so thank you so much I think 
Okay, I was going to say, I just think sometimes it's just giving people some ideas about what they what could be done on both sides from the kind of educator or supervisor perspective, but also from the trainee of what they might be able to ask for or might be available to them. It just makes that conversation a whole lot easier, I think. Thank you. So so to, to finish up this evening, we'd like to ask the both of you, um, let's start with Seb, if that's okay, what what are the next this is a huge question so answer it as as you will and how you want and we love the tangent so go for it um what is next for neurodivergence and medical education and with the sort of sub caveat subtext sub question of what's next with scholar with with scholarship within this field seb yeah um <clears throat> Glad you said scholarship because yeah, I I, I am a cerebral person. <laughs> I am a thinker, not so not so much good with the doing. Um, I'm very glad we have people like Cleona around to um, practically make things work and happen. <laughs> um, I think from a again, it's kind of more cerebral meta scholarships perspective. What's next? I mean, I am becoming personally really interested in. Uh, broader bringing in a lot of broader social science into the work we do i know we're grounded in you know pedagogy is social science but bringing in a lot of the more sociological theories looking at things like um so there's things like epistemic injustice um i've become very interested in and i think applies well to meded so i'd love to see more research on that um uh, that's basically so epistemic is a is fancy research word that basically it refers to the what we consider to be good and credible knowledge uh, we call it epistemology um, and to an epistemic thing an epistemic agent if we want to go fancy uh, is some kind of thing that produces knowledge um, that is credible uh, and epistemic injustice refers to the fact that well, the study of how certain marginalized groups become deemed not credible sources. Uh, you know, what, you know, why do psychiatrists decide the DSM and not autistic people who should be the key stakeholders, for example? Um, and it looks at the interplay between marginalization, oppression, and the various ways in which we can stop taking people seriously in the way that research is done to or about them. Uh, it's a really key player in the critical autism studies field at the moment, looking at things like Spectrum 10K and some of the more eugenics focused uh, genomics research that's going on, whereas the community preference is please, please stop. We don't mind the fact that we're autistic. It's who we are. Just do research that makes our lives better and help make people understand us better. Please don't into eugenics essentially uh, and epistemic injustice looks at that it looks at what why are some people not deemed credible or their views and perspectives not credible ways of making knowledge and doing research and i think there's such an avenue for that to come into the medical education sphere um, around the research we do within meded and empowering the kind of insert insider research that cleone's doing and participatory methods um, uh, and kind of combating this idea of an epistemic injustice um, and the way that we naturally, our systems are traditional, they are ableist, and we do a lot of discounting. Neurodivergent people, if we say we struggle, there's a lot of, oh yeah, but we all struggle a little bit with that, don't we? Um, and I think lots of the unifying concepts like that, for me as a scholarship, uh, from a scholarship perspective, that's where I'd love to see it go, is looking looking more toward, towards what research we do, why, and looking at involving more neurodivergent people, using more creative methods um, to really dig into that side of things from a social perspective. 
Thank you, Seb. And I think um, the sort of what I'm hearing from what you're saying is this um, o- overarching desire to um, propagate social equity and ensure that marginalised people's voices are listened to, heard and research and education is done with them rather than for or to them essentially which reflects hopefully some of our previous episodes outcomes as well um in terms of other marginalized communities um and i think that that tends to be um a, a theme of our discussion and i think you know medical education is is political and scholarship in medical education is is definitely political so thank you for sh- sharing that seb sorry what was that I was like massively so. We are in a massive position of privilege as medical educators. You know, yes, we like to study the way we teach and the way we support, but the people we're training are, use the old-fashioned term, but they are tomorrow's doctors. Um, so we're in a position of privilege to change medical culture around the world hereafter um, it, it, by the way we do our research and the way we teach. Thank, thank you, Seb. Cleone, would you mind? Um, um, <laughs> Having, having, having a go at that yes. question. So, what next for neurodivergence in medical education? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I don't think I can give such an academic or scholarly answer as Seb can, but probably from a, a, a more practical perspective, I'd love to see some research. And I thought it probably carries on quite nicely from Seb's last comment about tomorrow's doctors, but about our intake and medical students and the assessments that we do for recruiting medical students and how we can make that more inclusive and more diverse um, and whether online interviews is the right way to go mini interviews I think there's a big question around that and I'd love to see some research more research into that area Um, but also the way that we assess trainees um, is portfolios I think there's a big question and this is probably stems from I haven't done all the reading and research around it but it is what I'll be going away and reading if there is research in it. Um, but yeah, the way that we assess trainees um, is something like a, a prolonged period of observation, like having a supervisor following you around for a day, a much more useful and fair way of assessing trainees than having a five minute writing in your portfolio and um, where you might not be able to kind of get yourself across in your words um, or doing a three, six hour MCQ exam. Like I, I just have a question over what is the best form of assessment. Um, and yeah, I'd love to see some research into that field. Thank you so much, Cleone. And thank you so much, Seb. Lots has come out of this evening's discussion on neurodivergence and medical education from sort of personal experiences, um, learners' experiences. We touched on patients' experiences as well, and then educators' experiences. And um I think something I don't know about you, Oliver or Cleon or Seb, but one of the main things that I want to take away from today is how I um, read around some of the things that you've mentioned, Seb particularly, but also um, how I'm going to change my educational practices for the better to make them more inclusive, um, but also to really highlight the strengths that neurodivergent people bring to the table. I'm I'm really pleased to have heard all of that. It's been really, really helpful, really informative um, podcast and has left me with um, episode and it's left me with lots of questions, which is always good. Um, thank you to you both. Oliver, did you have anything else you wanted to add? 
no i echo completely what you said about um i i've learned so much in this conversation about um neurodiversity and the many elements that fall within it and yeah absolutely changing our own practice so thank you so much both of you for giving up your evening to talk to us um i think it's been great and um we will link to lots of the papers and sort of things discussed um in the show notes thank you for having us yeah thank you so much Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to say a very special thank you to our guests, Dr. Cleon Pardo and Dr. Seb Shaw for their personal insights and in-depth knowledge of this subject. We know some of the topics we discussed today may have been challenging or triggering for some listeners. If you are struggling and need support, please contact the relevant bodies within your organisation. Other sources of support include Autistic Doctors International, the British Medical Association, Occupational Health at your employer or your GP. As always, I'd also like to thank the rest of the TASME Time team and my, my co-host, Dr. Oliver Mercer, and post-production lead, Dr. Asim Javed, and podcast lead, Dr. Rob Cullum. I would also like to thank Dr. Cleon Pardo for all of her support with publicity and to Amlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thanks to everyone on the TASME committee who support with the production of this podcast. I've been Dr. Katie Stevenson. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk and make sure to follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Join us next time for our next episode where we will be talking about clinical reasoning in medical education. Thank you for listening to TASME Time and we look forward to you joining us again soon.